0: The title of our lesson is Laughter at Last. And we're going to be all over the place, so why don't you start with Genesis 16? I know we've talked about Genesis 16 and 17 already, but we didn't cover everything, so we're going to touch on some other um, aspects of those chapters, and we're going to try to get all the way to chapter 21. So if you'd bow with me, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, thank you for spring. I see the trees starting to bud and the daffodils already in bloom. And I get so excited about this time of year when we're reminded of your resurrection and newness of life that you alone can offer through what you did on the cross. And Lord, we just thank you for this privilege in this country to be able to assemble together for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through a look at your word. And thank you that um, we are seeing the same Jesus of the New Testament in the Old Testament. You truly are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you. We thank you for your word. Now bless this time. Um, May the words of my mouth and, and the thoughts and meditations of my heart and all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. And may you truly be lifted up in this next hour. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, that wonderful, blessed name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when about a decade had passed since God's initial promises to Abraham that all centered on him having a son, a seed, and Sarah still remained childless, they had decided to take matters into their own hands, hadn't they? That was in Genesis 6, verse 2. Abram had been specified as the father. God had made that clear. The son would be from Abraham. But if you go back and read everything about the Abrahamic covenant, you will see that to this point, he never specifically mentioned Sarai, or however you pronounce her other name, Sarai or Sarai. I'm going to say Sarai. Um, Fortunately, today she gets her name changed to Sarah, and I can say that a whole lot easier. But nothing specific. Now, they should have assumed, of course, that she would be included because in God's eyes, he sees a married couple as one. So they should have assumed that, but they didn't, and they grew impatient with God, and so they did things man's way. And they used, both of them used Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, as a surrogate mother, and things went amiss mighty mighty quickly after that didn't it Um, she had no trouble whatsoever conceiving and after she did conceive and knew she was pregnant suddenly her attitude changed her attitude toward her mistress she was displaying toward to sarah a bit of a haughtiness you know like look how easily i could conceive and you've had this problem, you know, must be something, sin in your life. I don't know what her, you know, what, what was going on in her mind. But she, she um, had some haughty disdain toward her mistress that, of course, Sarai picked up on immediately. And what did she do about it? Well, she went to her husband. She complained to Abram. I mean, after all, it was her whole idea to begin with, wasn't it? <laughs> but as soon as things went wrong, and uh, I'm sure there was a bit of jealousy, going on there too but she went to Abram to complain um, about what was happening and it's never good when a man is caught between two women Mm. (laughs) and he did not exactly respond correctly he responded passively by saying to his wife well you just do whatever you think is best in this situation, which she did. <laughs> she did what she thought was best, and she dealt so harshly with Hagar. I don't know what she did to her, but she mistreated her. Some commentaries think that the words harshly, she de- dealt harshly with her, actually means she slapped her around a bit. But after a while, Hagar had had enough, and she fled. She left. She was a runaway. And... Um, It's interesting that her name, I didn't have room to put that up there, but Hagar actually means to flee, and that's exactly what she did. She fled the situation, um, and she headed toward, where do you think she would go? Remember, she's Egyptian, so she headed down toward Egypt. She was going to try to find her way back to her homeland, and that's in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Well, it was then in the wilderness, Of sure, S-H-U-R, at a certain fountain of water that the pre-incarnate Christ made his first appearance as the angel of the Lord, which is actually the angel of Yahweh. And that appearance, now he's appeared, obviously, he's appeared many times in our study, we've seen that. But he's never appeared, he's appeared as a man. And he's spoken to people, um, and I don't know how he looked. Don't ask me. But this time, he appeared as the angel of the Lord. And when you read that in the Old Testament, it's usually him, Christ. This is the first time that it says he made his appearance as the angel of the Lord. And it's interesting to me that that appearance was made to a woman, a woman. And not only a woman, but an Egyptian woman. An Egyptian woman slave and a runaway slave. And then think of this an Egyptian woman runaway slave who was pregnant out of wedlock. What does that tell you about our Lord Jesus? Wonderful, isn't it? And the very first word that he spoke to her was her name. You know who the angel of the Lord is? The Good Shepherd. And doesn't he know his sheep by their name? You know, he has a flock, and if one gets out of the flock, he goes after that one. She was the fleeing sheep out of the flock, and he went to fetch her and bring her back. And his sheep know his voice, and they follow him. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen with her. I think it's interesting that he called her by her name. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar sarai's maid whence camest thou and whither wilt thou thou go the first word out of his mouth mouth was her name but if you compare that with abram and sarai go through the whole book of genesis and you will find they never called her by her name never she was always the maid servant isn't that interesting what a what a difference our our lord is just so compassionate And so he displayed his omniscience to her by knowing her name. I mean, there she is all alone. Well, she's got Isaac in her womb, but otherwise she's all alone in the wilderness. What did I say? Isaac? Okay. Ishmael, thank you. Thank you. Ishmael, we don't want to do that. (laughs) That's for Sarah. (laughs) But anyway, she's, she's basically alone. And then all of a sudden this figure appears in front of her and knows her name. He's displaying his omniscience right there, isn't he? But then he further displays his omniscience by d- telling, revealing to her that he knows her status, that she's a maid, and he even knows her mistress's name, Sarai. So immediately she realizes this guy is supernatural. If he's omniscient, he must be God. As he would do throughout his earthly ministry, the Lord then drew Hagar into a conversation with him. And how did he often do that in his earthly ministry? Those of you who studied his life, of, the life of Christ with us. When, when he would approach somebody, how did he usually start a conversation? With Exactly, with questions. He's the master of asking questions to draw people out and to get them to talking. And that's exactly what he did here. And in effect, his questions are, where did you come from? And where are you going? Hmm, Good questions, right? A lot of people in the world cannot answer those questions. Where'd you come from and where are you going? He wanted her to seriously analyze her situation to see that what ultimately she needed, bottom line, her greatest need was him. He could see her heart. He can see everybody's heart, can't he? Glad he can see mine. (laughs) He can see the heart. He saw her pain, her affliction. I mean, she was suffering. She'd been used and abused. He saw her need for hope and purpose and freedom. Freedom, not so much physical freedom as she needed freedom for her soul. You know, someone can even be in prison and be born again and have spiritual freedom. And that's what she needed, even though she was in bondage to others. Well, after answering his first question, honestly, she didn't answer the second question, where are you going? But she did answer the first question, where have you come from, by telling him that she was fleeing from her mistress. After hearing that, he then gave her a twofold command. What did he tell her? Return and submit. And that's in verse 9. Now, the Hebrew verb for submit includes, it's ana. By the way, if you know anybody named Anna, A N A, that word means humility. Oh, it's the word submit, but it includes the idea of humility. What he wanted her to do was to replace her attitude of condescension and haughtiness toward Sarai and replace it with an attitude of humility. And then he followed his twofold command with some promises some prophetic promises and another command and some other things. What did he tell her? Well, first of all, he told her in verse 10 that he was going to multiply her seed. Now, she's very early pregnancy, so I doubt she's showing. But the first thing he says to her is he knows that she's pregnant. (laughs) He's going to multiply through the child her seed exceedingly. In fact, he goes on and says that her Her descendants would be innumerable. Couldn't count them. There'd be so many. Do you know that she is the only woman to whom God directly promised innumerable progeny? The only woman. And then, now this is before they had ultrasound. He told her, not only could he see her heart, he could see into her womb. Of course, he's the one who put the child there. And by the way, it's a child. He's treating this as a child, right? He said her child was going to be a son. It was a son, not going to be. It was a son. And then he told her what to name the son. He, she was to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. Uh, you know, the Shema is in Deuteronomy. It's something that the Jews recite Hero israel how does it go yeah it's very that's the shema because the lord hears and that's the last part of his name and then l you know ishmael el, el is god so it means god hears so he was and he, he told her the reason that she was to name him ishmael is because the lord heard her affliction verse 11 he heard her affliction and basically he was telling her that she was not going to suffer you know he's telling her to return she's not going to suffer alone through the years ahead because he would be there for her he would hear her and he would provide her with strength then he makes some predictions about this child in her womb and if I was a mother I don't think I'd be too excited to hear this about my little boy (laughs) but the first thing he says is that he's going to be a wild man look at verse 12 he will be a wild man now I hate to tell you this and my daughter got one of my daughters got mad at me yesterday because I actually said the word but literally I hope I don't offend anybody literally it means you all know what I'm going to say don't you a wild ass okay let's replace that with donkey (laughs) but that's what he's saying he's going to be now would you like to hear that about your little boy no I don't think so that description whenever it's used in the scripture it speaks about someone stubbornly independent and uncontrollable just like a donkey donkeys are known for being a bit stubborn aren't they And then later on in verse 21, Ishmael was also predicted to, uh, well, he was going to be identified with wilderness living. So he would be living in the desert, in the wilderness, and he's also identified with uh, archery skills. So he would be really good with the bow and arrow. Then the Lord also goes on and tells her that Ishmael's hand would be against every man, and every man's hand would be against him now that's not another good thing to hear is it in other words he and of course this is also a prophecy about his descendants that he and his descendants would live in hostility toward all men and then it goes on and basically said even even their own brothers they would be against one another and their brothers half-brothers like Isaac so Ishmael's descendants would be War at war, not at peace with Isaac's descendants. Has that come to pass? Mm. So, Ishmael and his descendants would, in general, of course, there's always exceptions, but this is a general prophecy about the Ishmaelites that they would be a fiercely independent, self willed, warlike, nomadic people, desert people. And this prophecy was indeed fulfilled in Ishmael himself whose very conception created contention in his family, as did also later on his teenaged mistreatment of his younger brother Isaac. And we'll talk about that later this morning. And this prophecy has also seen its fulfillment in Ishmael's descendants. Already half Egyptian, okay? His his mom is Egyptian, so he's half Egyptian, we find out that he also took an Egyptian wife and became the father of 12 tribes, just like uh, you know, Jacob became the father of 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Ishmael became the father of 12 tribes, um, and those tribes, and I we'll won't say Arabic completely, but they were a combination. This, they made up eventually the greatest section of Arabs in the world, But they were a combination, interestingly, um, originally of Semitic and Egyptian blood. Semitic meaning they came through the line of Shem, you know, the Messianic lineage, through Abraham. But then, so they're a mixture. But a lot of Arabs uh, can trace their their, uh, ancestral record back to Ishmael. Then other Arab tribes can trace their origin to the six sons of Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife after Sarah died. And then, where did still more Arabs come? From Esau, the descendants of Esau, the brother, you know, the twin brother who sold his birthright for a bowl of oatmeal. (laughs) He was really hungry, (laughs) um he he married three wives and two of them were Canaanites and one wife was actually the daughter of Ishmael so you know that's a mixture but that's the origin of of the Arabs basically and then there's so much you know that has gone on over the centuries that it's all kind of mixed up but uh, interesting prophecy about Esau it is found in Genesis twenty-seven forty that he would live by the sword isn't it interesting it says that Ishmael would be great with the bow and arrow well, I kind of think of missiles nowadays <laughs> and Esau would be good with the sword that's just interesting to me and we do know that the Arab tribes in general now there are Arabs who are Christians, you know, not, I found out that only, um, most Arabs today, most Arabs today are Muslim. But they only make up about 12% of all the Muslims in the world. There are more Muslims in Indonesia and India and, uh, uh, well, Turkey and Iran, you know the Iranians are not Arabs, they're Persian. Um, The continent of Africa has a lot of Muslims. So Arabs only make up about 12 to 13% of Muslims. Anyway, what was I going to say? In general, the Arab tribes are characterized, this this is true, it is true, they are characterized by their impulsive, violent nature. And they do have a long, this is history, it's fact. They have a long historical record of warring among themselves. And also their half brothers, the Jews. So the prophecy has come to pass. Well, Hagar's immediate response to everything that she heard from the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, her immediate response was to praise him. And she did that by way of the name she gave to him. Hagar became the only person in the Bible to give God a name. I thought that was interesting, too. I didn't realize that until I read my book 20 years ago and found out, oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, you might think, oh, no, that can't be. But then I started researching to see if that was really true, and there were people who named places like Abram does, after he sacrifices Isaac, that named places, gave places names that sound like a name for God and that became a name for God, but they were actually naming the place. She gave God a name, and it's El Roy, not Old Roy, that's dog food. (laughs) El Roy, and the reason she gave him that name is because she was... She was so excited about the fact that he saw her. That means the God who sees. Her response of praise wasn't so much about his, his message to her as it was in the fact that he actually saw her as a person. He knew her heart. He could read her like an open book. And he cared about her. That's what affected her more than anything, was that he knew her. So she refers to him as El Roy, the God who sees me. She had a life-transforming experience at that wilderness well. She was awakened to the truth that there is a God, a living God, who both sees and hears people, even women, and even slaves, and even women pregnant out of wedlock. You know, no fault of hers, but that he sees everybody, everybody, in, and he knows them by name. He saw her in her affliction. He knew not only her name, he knew her circumstances, her child, and he knew the right thing for her to do about her future. And guess what? He was the one who, who pursued pursued her. Was she out there in the wilderness looking for him? No. But he found her. He came after her. And so, realizing that he was God, she willingly obeyed his command to return because she knew she now belonged to him, not to Abram, not to Sarah. She belonged to Elroy. And she would willingly submit in humility to her mistress because she really would be submitting to who? To the Lord. And that makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? Well, the scripture purposely mentions the location of the well out there in the wilderness where the Lord met Hagar in her distress. You know, the names, especially in the book of Genesis and the Old Testament, names are important. And so when when the Holy Spirit makes sure to tell us that the well was, look at verse 14, between Kadesh and Bered, you can figure there's probably a reason for that. And there is, because those names have symbolic meaning. Kadesh means holy place. Bered means judgment. And it was between the holy, holy place and judgment that Hagar met the seeing, hearing, caring, holy Lord. What a stark contrast to the dead, sightless, speechless gods of egypt that she was used to it was there also that he gave her a choice whither wilt thou go he asked her and that was followed by a command he asked her a question where are you going to go from here and then he tells her what she should do she should return and she should submit and i got to thinking you know we're all on a wilderness journey aren't we in this life, this is, we live in a wilderness. <laughs> this world is a big wilderness. We're on a journey. And at some point in our lives, some point, we come to a definitive place that's between holy, the holy place and judgment. And it's there where El Roy, the God who sees if we would be quiet long enough, if people out there in the world would stop long enough to hear that still small voice, but people are so busy filling their lives with music and video games and TV and you name it that they never stop to really listen to the Lord. But when they do, if they will, he whispers questions like he did with hiding Adam. Remember when Adam sinned and he was hiding in the garden and the Lord asked him, Where art thou, Adam? Where are you in your relationship with me? He's asking that to every Adam out there. And then he asks questions like he did with, with fleeing Hagar. Where will you go from here? Where are you and where are you going? Or questions like he asked to Saul of Tarsus. Why are you persecuting me? There's a lot of people out there who are hiding from God. They're fleeing from God or they're kicking against the pricks of their conscience, aren't they? Fighting against God. So he says, why are you persecuting me? Hagar could obey the way of the Lord. He had told her return, submit, which would be the way of holiness. The way actually would be back up to Hebron, which is interesting. Abram was living in Hebron. You know what Hebron means? I didn't have room. Hebron means fellowship. She could go back up to the place of fellowship, to to the place of faith, or and that's the way of holiness, to the holy place, or she could continue on her way, which would be down... Toward Egypt, right? Which would be the way, the steps to judgment. The way of, to the holy place or the way to judgment. Just perfect, isn't it? Beautiful. Well, the wilderness fountain account of Hagar. I wonder how many of you are thinking of this as I've been talking. If it reminds you of anything. It's like almost like a dress rehearsal <laughs> for the day that the Lord would approach another woman at a well a source of water. That woman had also been used by men and dealt harshly by women. And she also was an outcast. As there were very few people back in Abraham's day who would have reached out in compassion to a slave of any kind, much less a female slave, much less a pregnant runaway female slave, So too in Christ's day, there were very few people, even the people of God, who would have reached out with sincere (laughs) compassion to a promiscuous, adulterous, Samaritan woman, right? That's why even his disciples were shocked when Jesus talked to her. Only the one Who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Cares about every single soul. Every single soul on planet earth. Past, present, and future. Without any respect of persons. Amen? Amen. You know, without bigotry of any kind. If the whole world was only Christian, you know, there would be none of this foolishness that's going on. This bigotry. That man has always had toward his fellow man. So stupid. Well, the first thing Hagar did after meeting the pre incarnate Christ at the fountain of water there in the wilderness was very much like the reaction of the Samaritan woman after her divine appointment with the carnate Christ, you know, in the flesh, some 2,000 years later. That account is in John chapter 4. Hagar returned to those who had hurt her, to those who had rejected her. And she shared with them the good news about the one she had met at the fountain, the the well in the wilderness. And we know that she shared that because guess what Abram names the son? Ishmael. Where would he have been? you know that he didn't just randomly pick that name she had told him and then that well came to be known uh, um i'm not even going to try to say the name bear la roy but anyway uh it became by the time moses wrote genesis everybody knew that that was the well where hagar had met the god who sees her and hears not only sees but by the name ishmael god who hears and who sees and wasn't that the same reaction of the samaritan woman Isn't it fascinating? I I just keep getting amazed as we do this study how Jesus Christ, when he came in the flesh, they should have recognized him because he'd already revealed who he was. He's exactly the same person in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. He approaches people. You know, he pursues them. He's the good shepherd. He knows them by name. He's compassionate. He cares about everybody. He even talks to women oh my, <laughs> and uh, he's, just, he's just so much the same, anyway, um, she, the woman at the well, of course, the Samaritan woman did exactly the same thing, you know, she's the first one to ever call Jesus Savior, the Savior of the world, in fact, I think that's exciting, this is a women's study, so, you know, when men teach, they don't give all these, they don't see things the same as we do, do they, <laughs> I mean, it's in there, I'm not making it up, it's in the Bible, um, and we assume that Hagar submissively, you know, went, she went back and, and she submitted properly, humbly submitted to Sarah because for the next 13 years we hear no more disputes between the two women. Well, then we get to Genesis 17, which discusses events that actually took place 13 years after Ishmael's birth. Now, since Ishmael was still. Abram's only child by this point in time he had come to the conclusion that the promised son must be Ishmael must be after all God sent him back Hagar and him back if he wasn't the promised son wouldn't he have just let her keep going to Egypt but he intervened and sent them back to him and uh, also what had he told hagar that he would multiply her seed exceedingly in you know innumerable and isn't that doesn't that match up with what the lord had told him so you could see if you were in abraham's shoes you'd come to the same conclusion wouldn't you that ishmael must be the promised son so when we discussed last time some of the events of chapter 17 it had been 14 years since god's last communication with abram and that was back in chapter 15, between 15 and 17, there's uh, 14 years, 13, but you have to add nine months for the pregnancy. Anyway, what did we discuss in chapter 15? That was the last time Abraham had heard from the Lord. And that's when he believed in the promise about the coming seed and it was counted to him to righteousness. And then remember the Lord went on with that blood soaked ceremony ceremony. Uh, that pointed to Calvary in which he ratified the Abrahamic covenant. You remember that? That had been fourteen years earlier. And in those fourteen years, the, the Abram had not heard from the Lord. Fourteen long years that he had not heard from the Lord. And now, in chapter 17, verse 1, in his next appearance, Christophany, Jesus. Comes to Abraham, not as the angel of the Lord, but however he appeared to him, and he introduces himself um, by a new name. This chapter is full of new names. He introduces himself to Abraham as Almighty God, which in Hebrew is what? El Shaddai. You remember that song? I haven't heard it lately, but I love that song, El Shaddai. I wish I could sing. could sing it for you and then you'd all leave in a hurry but (laughs) this is the very and El Shaddai that that is a great name is a wonderful name for the Lord because it means the all-sufficient all-powerful God this is the first time that this name for God is used in the scripture so he's saying to Abram been 14 years since I've talked to you, Abram, don't forget, I am the all-sufficient, all-powerful God. Abraham needed to be reminded of that, don't we also? Every single day, we need to be reminded of that. So what he's saying here is, um, if I want to conceive a child in a barren, post-menopausal, aged woman, or even in a virgin, I can do it. I'm all-sufficient. I'm all-powerful God. The pre-incarnate El Shaddai, who, by the way, in verses 1 to 3, is also referred to as Yahweh, the Lord. See that with all capitals? That's Yahweh, whenever you see that. And Elohim, in verse 3. So three names in those three verses. El Shaddai, Yahweh, and Elohim. And who is it? Who is who is this? It's Jesus. Those are names for Jesus. So he then reiterated to Abram his promise to multiply his seed exceedingly. Now grateful, so grateful that the Lord, 14 long years he hasn't heard from. Him. So Abraham is so grateful that now he finds out God still intends to keep his promise. Promise is. What does Abram do? And how old is Abraham? Look at verse one. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, he's 99 now. He was 86 when Ishmael was born. Now he's 99 and he falls on his face (laughs) before the Lord and worships him. He is so excited that again, he is seeing the Lord. And it was at that time then that the Lord gave him his new name. And finally, I can stop calling him Abram (laughs) and go to Abraham. He gets a new name. Instead of being Abram, exalted father, henceforth, and the Bible changes. From now on, he's Abraham. Henceforth, he's going to be called Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Now, that name change involved the simple addition of one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That letter is called hey, like hey. (laughs) <laughs> and it's got the same sound as our letter H, which makes sense, okay? So all, to change Abram, Abram to Abraham, God just altered with that one letter, which was breath, the sound of breath. And a lot of people say that this, they think that this is when God breathed rejuvenating reproductive life into abraham and also sarai same change in her name verse 15 it's at the same time of the same christophany that he also changes Sarah's name from sarai to sarah sarah i'm trying to do it <laughs> but it's the h sound so that that's kind of interesting you know the sound of breath that, that that's when he maybe when he rejuvenated them so she became Sarah, which means princess, and he said um, that she would become the mother of nations. Princess, I call her princess, mother of nations. This, these are the first two name changes in the scripture, divinely made name changes. There's going to be others. Can anybody think of some other people that had their names changed? Saul to Paul, Jacob to Israel, Simon too, Peter. Yeah, so there's, there were others, um, but these are the first two. So we had two new names for God, Elroy and El Shaddai, and now two new names for Abram and Sarah. Well, after the Lord repeated his promise to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and thee the and thy seed. Then he added something new. That he had not said before. Now we have discussed it. But Abraham hadn't heard this. He tells Abraham in verse 7. That his covenant is an everlasting covenant. This means that his covenant involves more than just time. It involves eternity. Because it's all wrapped up. The Abrahamic covenant is all wrapped up. In the ultimate seed with a capital S. Jesus Christ. Who is himself eternal. So, of course, the covenant centered on him would be covenant, uh, eternal, because he's eternal. You know, all of the covenants, except for the Mosaic covenant, which is ended, were eternal. They were eternal covenants. Maybe not the Edenic covenant. I mean, once they messed up, that was the end of that one. <laughs> Eight of the, but all the others are eternal because the, they center on the Lord, who is eternal. What is the primary reason for the Abrahamic covenant? Well... You don't have to worry about answering it because the Lord himself answered it. In verse 7, The end of verse 7, he says, To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. You see, the covenant was not all about Abraham's physical blessings, such as soil and seed. That was part of it, but that's not the ultimate reason. It was for the creation of a people of faith. That's what all the covenants are about. God wanting to create a people of faith. This covenant was so that God would have people like Abraham who he could call his friends. Are you a friend of God? That's what he actually calls us in the New Testament. This covenant was so that God would have people who really desire to know him. Remember Paul said, oh, that I might know him deeply know him. That's why we're here to ever increasingly get to know him. And Paul said, and the power of his resurrection. Don't you want to know the power of his resurrection? Now the next part, not so much, maybe, huh? The fellowship of his sufferings, but that's a good thing too, to be able to say what Paul said. That, that takes a lot, but he wanted a people who he could fellowship with. You know, it gets lonely being up there for eternity, just talking to yourself. (laughs) and the angels um he wanted a people before whom he could display his attributes of mercy and grace and unconditional love and forgiveness he wanted um to be glorified by them for these attributes and other attributes like his holiness and his justice people who would willingly reciprocate his love and want to obey him and to please him so this primary purpose for all of his covenants is so important that you know what he mentioned it again at the end of verse 8 he says and i will be their god that promise the promise that he would be their god has the understood corollary that they would be his people he wants a people of faith like abraham or he would be their god and We would be his people. Then following the change of Sarah's name, now she's not here. You know, I guess Abraham has to go and tell her she has a new name (laughs) because she's not here, but he does say that he's going to change her name. Then the Lord made it clear first time he shouldn't have had to do this, but he did. He made it crystal clear to Abraham that Sarah was going to be the actual mother of the promised son. And then he added that the child would be born at that same time next year. That's in verse 21. Well, hearing this, (laughs) Abraham is so ecstatic. Guess what the old guy does again? Falls down on his face a second time. And he laughed. Here comes the laughter. It's beginning. He laughed joyously out loud. But it was not a laughter of disbelief it was a laughter of genuine belief at the sheer idea of a child being born in a year's time to a hundred year old man and a 90 year old woman and you would laugh too wouldn't you (laughs) unless it was you and then you'd be crying You're 90 years old and you found out you were pregnant. (laughs) I know, I know. There are three, and isn't it interesting, three. There are three occasions of laughter in the scripture concerning the birth of Isaac. And it's so appropriate that his name means what? Laughter. His name means. Isn't that a great name? Isn't it? You have an Isaac yeah, for laughter. Uh, uh, Yeah, and he has a beautiful laugh. But I just wonder why more of us don't name our sons Isaac. That's just a, I have a grandson whose middle name is Asher, and that means happy. That's a good name too. (laughs) But to name a little child laughter, I love that. So uh, the first time was here. When the Lord told Abraham that Sarah was going to conceive his son, he laughs. The second laughter is Sarah's laughter, but it's a laughter of disbelief. We'll talk about that a little bit in just a little bit. She hears the same promise, but she laughs within herself and doesn't believe it. And that's in chapter 18, verse 12. And then the third was her laughter of supreme joy when she is actually holding that little son in her arms and that's in chapter 21 verse 6 so no wonder Abraham or Hagar actually yeah Abraham was told to name his son Isaac laughter and I don't I I, I wouldn't doubt one bit that the Lord himself was up in heaven laughing and laughing over all the joy that finally you know these these people he loves so much finally saw that he keeps his promises and I I I think he was laughing with them at how wonderful it all was well then there's an interesting verse that I don't want to skip because when you read the scripture it's easy to just read it and keep going and not even notice exactly what it's saying it's at verse 22 Um, let me read it to you verse 22 I'm in chapter 17 it says and he left off talking with him that means the Lord El Shaddai God pre-incarnate Christ left off talking with Abraham and what did he do next and God went up from Abraham what what does that say one minute he's talking to him and then what does he do he goes up <laughs> well you know, finished talking and up he goes and Abraham's there <laughs> at this point I don't think too much shocks Abraham anymore Um, but I imagine that was quite a sight. You see, to verify that he was indeed who he claimed to be, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Elohim, and that he had the power to keep his promises, the Lord ascended to heaven right before Abraham's eyes. Do you know that the pre-incarnate Christ ascended just like he did with Abraham on two other occasions in the Old Testament? that makes for three, three times he ascended into, now he ascended many times, but three times visibly before people as they were watching him. The second time is uh, when he had just changed Jacob's name to Israel and then reiterated to Jacob the same covenant promises that he had made with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. And then we read, this is Genesis 35 Verse 13, we read, And God went up from him, from Jacob, in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob gets to do the same thing, (laughs) watch him ascend. Now, does anybody know when the third occasion was? You get a gold star if you do. Anybody? Probably not. It was when... The uh, Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, had made an appearance to another woman and told her she had been barren all her life and told her she was going to conceive a son. And she was out in the field and she went running home to tell her husband, Manoah, that she had been told she was going to have a son. He didn't believe her. And so she prayed that she said, oh, well, I hope he comes back. And he did. He came back. The Lord came back. And uh, she said, hold on. Stay right there. Don't move. And she ran home (laughs) to get her husband because he wouldn't believe. And, and, you know, unless he saw with his, he's like Thomas. And so she gets Manoah and she brings him out. And sure enough, you know, he tells Manoah, yes, your wife is right. I am going to give you a son and you are to name him Samson. Samson. This is Samson's parents. And uh, then they build an altar and they make a sacrifice and while the flame from the sacrifice is ascending into heaven, you know what the Lord did? He ascended up into heaven in the flame and Manoah and his wife are standing there watching and Manoah gets scared to death and he says to his wife, we don't know her name, I wish we did, he says he says to his wife, we're going to die, we're going to die, we've just seen, God and no man sees God and lives and she says honey (laughs) he just promised us a son (laughs) so I don't think we're going to die I mean that's really the story you can read it for yourself Judges chapter 13 so three times three Old Testament visible ascensions of the pre-incarnate Christ what did those prefigure (laughs) what were they a foreshadow of The coming grand day when, before his amazed disciples, the same Jesus ascended into heaven again. But this time, there was something different. This time, he ascended in his resurrected, glorified human body. He didn't just resurrect in spirit. He resurrected physically, bodily. And those men, those disciples then knew with absolute, full, total assurance that the one who had not only defeated death when he resurrected out of his tomb, but also could defy gravity, that he would indeed fulfill every single promise and every single prophecy he had ever made. I mean, those guys were so confident of who he was that they were all willing to give their lives, weren't they? Mm. Well, shortly at now, chapter 18, shortly after the Lord's El Shaddai appearance in Genesis 17, then one day, and this is probably only maybe a few weeks later. Abraham is sitting in the heat of the day, which is like noon, and he's sitting outside of his tent door, and his eyes are down, so he's probably praying, and then when he opens, he lifts up his eyes, and there is the Lord in front of him. Now, by now, he recognizes him, and the Lord is accompanied with two angels, and Abraham is so excited to see him that he jumps up, heat of the day, 99 years old, and he runs to him, and of course, again, what do you think he does? (laughs) (laughs) he falls down to the ground to worship him and then he runs around oh this guy had a lot of energy he runs all over the place he runs to Sarah it's hilarious to me he runs to Sarah and tells her to quick bake some bread and then he tells her how to make it you think at 90 years old she doesn't know how to bake bread he tells her what to do knead it and you know do all this (laughs) and then he runs and he tells the guys to fix the best calf and he prepares a meal which I think is really interesting because Um, he does he could have sent a servant but he does all that running around he wanted everything to be perfect to serve them a meal and then he himself served them and he stood by he didn't sit down I mean that teaches us a lot about ministry to the Lord I think right there that's one of your homework questions that's why I threw that in there all right so then this is the occasion when he makes the announcement to Abraham that Sarah would have the long-awaited son of promise according to the time of life. What does that mean? In nine months. In nine months. So I guess this is three months later after the other one. Anyway, so she, in th- nine months, she's going to have her son, her child. Now, Sarah was, was participating in an ancient Middle East custom at that time, which women today do not do. Hmm. She was eavesdropping. <laughs> she was standing right outside the tent door, listening to the men's conversation. And as soon as she heard the Lord say she was going to have a baby in nine months, what did she do? She, but did she laugh out loud? No, that would give her away. <laughs> she laughed in her heart, but it was a laughter of disbelief. She did not believe. Um, And that's in verse 12. Yet, just as the Lord promised, she did conceive, and her long, long burden of barrenness was finally, finally lifted at 90 years of age. At the set time, it says in 21-2, if you want to jump over to chapter 21, 21, verse 2, at the set time Isaac was born finally all of her longings and hopes for a child were realized can you imagine what a day of rejoicing that must have been for her and there was great joy for everyone who heard about the miracle son because that was a mir- that was a miracle i mean she was not only old she was postmenopausal she'd been barren all her life it was a miracle however his birth was about a whole lot more than just joy and laughter it was about a god who keeps his word keeps his promises three times in verses one and two of chapter 21 we heard that we read that he did as he said he did as he said he did as he said said. remember that god does what he says he keeps his word furthermore his promises are fulfilled in whose time our time or his time his time one of the best pieces of advice to keep your life anxiety free stress-free now I got everybody's attention right is to submit to learn to submit to God's timetable and to adjust the pace of our walk with his pace he has he has a totally different perspective of time than we do doesn't he we're used to pop-up hot dog toasters (laughs) not yet but we're going to be after I finish shopping (laughs) he's not always on time but he's in time because he acts at the right time and the best time and at the promised time remember that very important Sarah I can't imagine how radiant she was probably you know we know she was a beautiful woman she was already beautiful because twice she's been grabbed by this time we skipped over the second time she was grabbed in her late 80s by another guy the king of Gerar. (laughs) and thrown into his harem abimelech i you know i was thinking about that on the way here this morning i was thinking you know one thing i really don't fear is being grabbed by somebody and thrown into their harem (laughs) i know i'm late i know i'm late do you you worry about that (laughs) just count your blessings that you don't have to worry about that (laughs) your young beautiful girls might have to worry about that yes <laughs> but she she had to be bubbling over with joy and smiles and laughter her, her greatest desire was fulfilled at long last she was a mother she had a child and there was only one person in all the world he was going to call mother you know she probably held a lot of other ladies babies but finally you know she was holding her own and uh, that one woman uh, would be her he would call her mother so joy was spilling out so much in her in her heart that it came out in her mouth and she actually sang a song she broke into a song You wouldn't know that unless you knew the Hebrew. I'm going to skip all the reasons for it. But it's a song in verse 6 that expresses her joy. You know, there were two other women in Scripture who did the same thing. They broke out in a song of joy, and it was about the same thing, about having a son when they had been barren. Or (laughs) one of them was actually a virgin. (laughs) Mary broke into song, and the other one was Hannah. Hannah. Her song of joy, Sarah's song of joy, contains a play on words because the child's name was Isaac, meaning laughter. So she spoke of her laughter and the laughter of all who would laugh with her when they heard about the miracle of her son. She said, God hath made me to laugh. And this time, this is the third time we hear about laughter. This was believing laughter because he was there in her, in her um, arms. A year earlier, and I hadn't mentioned this, a year earlier when she had laughed in her heart, and it was a laughter of disbelief, the Lord heard her laugh in her heart. Didn't he? I mean, did he not know she was outside the tent or Of course, he knew exactly, as he was saying everything for her to hear it, and he heard the laughter in her heart. And so he responded with these words He said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's in chapter 18, verse 14. That is a monumental verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But this is really good. I don't know if you ever knew this before, but the Hebrew word hard is the same exact word that is found in Isaiah 9-6 that you all know because it's on Christmas cards for unto us. A child is born unto us, a son is given, and then it gives us a bunch of names for him, starting with what name? And his name shall be called Wonderful. What's one of the names of Jesus? Wonderful. And then it goes on, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Peace. But that name wonderful is the same word in Hebrew as hard. That means that another way to ask the Lord's question to Sarah would be this. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I love that. And the fascinating thing is that the wonderful one who asked that question about his own power to do anything is the one who answered that question 2,000 years later when he was speaking to his disciples. He said, with God, all things are possible. Is anything too wonderful? Is anything too hard or difficult for the Lord? What's the answer? No, with God, all things are possible. He answered the question, Luke 19, 26. So is it too wonderful? Is it too impossible for the Lord to give a barren post aged woman, a child? No. Is it too wonderful for God himself to enter into the womb of a virgin and become the God-man? No. Is it too wonderful for the bodies of deceased believers to one day rise from their graves? No. Is it too wonderful to believe that we who trust in Christ will live forever with him in a place that's too wonderful to even begin to describe? No. Is it too wonderful for salvation to be possible because the wonderful son of God paid the f- full price for our sins? No. It may seem like it's too wonderful to be true. Doesn't it? It almost seems like it's just too too, too wonderful. When I heard about the rapture, I said, that's too good to be true. Well, when I heard about the gospel, I said, that's too good to be true. But it is true, because with God, all things are possible. Remember that. With God, all things are possible. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Well, it was a custom in Abraham's day for friends and family to have a big feast when the child was finally weaned from his mother's milk. So when Isaac was about three years old, he had, Abraham had a weaning celebration. <laughs> and because Abram was wealthy, I'm sure there was a lot of people there, and they were all laughing and having a great time. However, there was one person in attendance who was not full of laughter. Who was that? Ishmael. Now he is 17 years old, because Isaac is about three, so he's 17. He had been, for 14 years, he had been the center of his father's attention. He had been the apple of his father's eye. That was no longer the case. There was an intruder into his life. And he was old enough to understand the change that Isaac meant for his inheritance rights as his father's heir. And he wasn't laughing. Now, he may have thought because there was such a large crowd of people there that nobody would notice his his mockery of his little half-brother. But Mama Bear... Was watching, like we always do. So she's not at all pleased. <laughs> so so Sarah is not at all at, uh, pleased, and so guess who she goes to, of course, to complain about the situation. She goes to Abraham, and she says, "This is in 21:10." She says, she insists that the bondwoman—notice she still doesn't call Hagar by her name—she insists that the bondwoman and her son be cast out. Now many people have criticized Sarah for this and say that she's just not very understanding, that was mean of her, blah, blah, blah. Um, After all, Ishmael only existed because it was her doing in in the first place. But you know who did not criticize Sarah? The Lord did not criticize her. In fact, the Lord told Abraham to hearken unto the voice of his wife and cast out Ishmael and Hagar. Now, why would God agree with Sarah on this matter? Well, to answer that question, it gets really, really deep into how Sarah represents grace and Hagar represents the law, and there's all these deep levels that maybe I'll put as an appendix to your lesson. But let me just say, on the surface level, one thing we need to understand is that the Hebrew word for mockery that is used in 21, verse 9, that uh, Ishmael was mocking, That word is not just teasing, you know, joking, playful, teasing type of stuff that a teenager would do to a little toddler. Uh, In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks about this, and he calls what Ishmael was doing to Isaac persecution. And that's in Galatians 4.29. Both Moses and Paul also used, for their words mocking and persecution, they used the imperfect tense, which tells us that this was not a one-time thing. This had been going on probably for a long time, maybe since the little baby was born. It was a situation of continuous persecution, and it was mean-spirited, and Sarah saw the danger for her son, Abraham's rightful heir, and more importantly, the heir of God's covenant promises. Now remember, God had predicted that Ishmael would be a wild donkey (laughs) whose hand would be against every man and every man's hand would be against him. And at 17 years of age, he was already proving that prophecy true. He was against his half-brother and his descendants still mock and persecute the descendants of Isaac. Well, the worst thing is that Ishmael's attitude and his behavior toward Isaac represented his heart attitude toward God and toward God's word because he surely at 17, he knew from his father about God's covenant promises, which included a son through Sarah, his wife, his true wife. And at his age, Ishmael, understood that for Sarah to have had a baby was a miracle. Everybody knew it was a miracle. So his persecution of Isaac demonstrated his disrespect for God's promises and God's power. His persecution of Isaac represented also a rejection of the coming Savior, which was to be through his half-brother Isaac. Now, since this is a study on Old Testament Christology, I need to point out that there's a lot of typology in Isaac and Christ. And we'll get to that next time when we talk about the sacrifice there on Mount Moriah. We all know that one. But there's a lot of typology of Christ concerning his birth. You know, his, his miraculous conception uh, served as a picture in type of the even more miraculous conception of the Savior. By way of Isaac's conception in Sarah, you see the Lord God was preparing the world to be able to believe in an even more miraculous conception of his son in a virgin. Also, Isaac's birth foreshadowed Christ in that it occurred at God's set time. Remember that? We read that in 21 one two. The incarnation of Christ had been divinely predetermined in eternity past and then revealed where well in genesis three fifteen for the first time and it would be fulfilled at god's appointed time and that's what we're told in galatians when the fullness of time was come god sent forth his son made of a woman isaac also pictured the lord's birth in that there was a lengthy interval of time between when abraham received the promise and when it was actually fulfilled Do you know how many years When he received the promise, how old was Abraham? Seventy-five. And when the promise was fulfilled, how old was he? A hundred. So 25 years of an an interval. Well, there was even more of that when God first promised the world, Adam and Eve, you know, the coming seed of the woman, and when he fulfilled it. Many, many years. So that's another way that they're similar also it's interesting that both the mother both the mother of Isaac Sarah and the mother of the Lord Mary verbalized the impossibility humanly speaking of bearing the sons that God had promised to them we've already seen that Sarah laughed in disbelief when she first heard that she was going to bear a son she said to herself shall I of a surety bear a child which am old and then that's when the pre incarnate Lord said, for her sake, Is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Well, some 2,000 years later, the young Mary is told that she's going to bring forth a son who would be the Savior. And she, being a virgin, asks this question How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Good question and that's Luke 134. And as with Sarah, do you know what her answer is? Gabriel gave her the answer, speaking for the Lord and here it is, with God nothing shall be impossible. Luke 137. Also, both Jesus and Isaac were given their names ahead of time. Mary was told what to name the baby, Sarah was told what to name the baby. Isaac was Named laughter, because he was his father's joyful delight. Well, so too, is Jesus the joyful delight of excuse me <clears throat> of his father. His father is well pleased in him. Isaac's name promised the rejoicing to come one day. Through Jesus, who is the greatest source of joy and delight and laughter there is in all the world. If anybody has business being happy and laughing, that's why I like to have fun up here when we teach. Because we should be happy. Our little sour pusses. We have, we, we have Jesus. We know Jesus. I mean, there's no reason for depression in our lives. There isn't. With God, all things are possible. Well, in addition, of course, we know Isaac was mocked by his brother and Jesus. Was he mocked by his brothers, his half-brothers? Oh, yes. Not only his physical half-brothers, but his physical (laughs) half-brothers, if you know what I mean. The Jews and his real half-brothers. The outcasting of Hagar and Ishmael, I want to finish with this, Um, I promise you, Um, was probably the most difficult thing Abraham ever had to do. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. more so than when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. It actually tells us that he was very grievous when the Lord told him to obey Sarah and cast out Ishmael. I mean, he was his firstborn son. It was like taking out a piece of his heart. Very grievous means that he was literally shaking from head to toe. Because you see, he did not know that he would ever see Ishmael again. And he may not have. We don't know. We know that Ishmael was there when he buried Abraham. But there's no record that he ever saw him again. He went with his mother to, leave, to live in the wilderness. Um, so he didn't know that he'd ever see him again. But what did he believe about Isaac? Yeah, he did. He believed that Isaac, even if he had to go through with the sacrifice, that he, God would resurrect him from the dead because he was the son of promise. The Messiah was going to come through him. He didn't have that assurance with Ishmael. And you know what else I don't think he had assurance about with Ishmael? That he'd even see him in eternity. You know, his attitude toward everything. So this was probably the most difficult separation Abraham ever had to do. But the Lord helped him. He doesn't put on us more than we can bear. And so just before he sent out Ishmael, the Lord promised him that, and he should have remembered Hagar had you know, heard that her seed would be multiplied exceedingly. But the Lord said, he was going, he told Abram, I'm going to make of him a great nation. So that right there, he knows he's not going to perish. The Lord had taken care of Hagar and Ishmael in the womb, the last time they were cast out in the wilderness, and what was the silver lining in that episode? Who got saved? Hagar. Met the pre-incarnate angel of the Lord, and she got saved. Well, this next time, God is saying, I protected them the first time. I'm going to take care of them the next this next time. And you know who got saved in this wilderness experience? The Lord was way waiting and waiting for Ishmael to finally cry out to him. He was dying of thirst. His mother moved him a bows, an arrow distance from her because she didn't want to see him die. But he was dying under a bush and he finally got so low and so desperate that he cried out to the Lord. And at that moment, the Lord opened Hagar's eyes to see a well of water. Right there, it had been there, but she had the veil over until Ishmael cried out to the Lord. She goes over and gets the water, and Ishmael is saved. Physically, now there's a debate. Was he saved spiritually? You decide. I give you some verses in the scripture where I think he was. Let me show you one of them if I can find it again. Um, You know, when Abraham... Okay. Okay. Did Abraham intercede on behalf of Lot when God told him he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. Abraham interceded on behalf of Lot. Lot was saved. We didn't know that until we got to Peter (laughs) in the New Testament. Um, Do you know that Abraham interceded on behalf of Ishmael? Do you know what the very first prayer in the scripture is? This I found very fascinating. The very first recorded pr- recorded prayer in the scripture is with regard to Ishmael. And I can't find it because I'm all over the place here. But it's um, when Abraham had just found out that Sarah was going to have the promised son. And then he says, oh, Lord, that that Ishmael might live before thee. That's one clue, I think the Lord answers Abraham's intercessory prayers but then also he says he would bless Ishmael and I find it difficult for the Lord to say he's going to bless somebody if they die and go to hell another key is in here somewhere when he's um, interceding on behalf of uh, or no this is when God is trying to decide if he's going to tell Abraham what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, you know what, well, he's my friend. I, um, I'll, I'll share with him. And here's what he says. This is in 1819. I think this is the biggest clue that Ishmael did get saved out there in the wilderness. Look at 1819. This is God talking to himself, the Lord talking to himself. And he says, for I know him. In other words, I know Abraham that he will command his children and his household after him. And now look at the next words. And they, who is they? They his children and they his children shall keep the way of the Lord now one of his children his firstborn was Ishmael so you can debate back and forth I guess when we get to heaven we'll find out if Ishmael is there but I really do think that he got saved and other verses, 17, verse 18. 17 18 is that the which one that's the prayer okay that's the first recorded prayer in the scripture oh that ishmael might live before the lord all right i've kept you way over time um let's close in prayer father thank you for the patience of your people thank you for their desire to know you and that they're willing to sit in these hard uncomfortable chairs for so long (laughs) and listen to me i just pray that we've We've lifted you up and exalted you this morning because you surely do deserve it. Thank you for being El Roy, the God who sees us. You see us, you hear us, you know us, and you want us to know you and to reciprocate your love. And that's my prayer for every one of us, that we would want to know you in the power of your resurrection and even the fellowship of your suffering. Thank you that you are El Shaddai. The, the limitless power and provision, God, and that nothing is too wonderful for you to accomplish. All things are possible with you. Give us faith worthy of the two towering truths of this scripture, that nothing is too difficult for you, and that you, the judge of all the earth, will do that which is right. We love you. I ask that we'd be salt and light in the next two weeks and bring us all back safely in two weeks, for we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.